We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through to 11, the true Christian. Probably one of the most misunderstood passages, misunderstood passages in the Bible, is Matthew chapter 5 through to chapter 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. For example, years ago, when I was doing door-to-door outreach in East London, Someone that I was talking to about Jesus quoted several verses from the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through to 7. And he made application to his own life. Also, a prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ that is known as the Lord's Prayer can be found in that sermon. The thing is that the man who was quoting from the sermon in the mount, on the mount rather, in East London, with application to his own life, was a Rastafarian. And many people who pray the Lord's Prayer are not Christians either. That's weird, and it makes no sense when you consider that with that sermon, Jesus was teaching his disciples. He was teaching Christians. As it is written in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, the very beginning of that Sermon on the Mount, look at verse 1 there, where it is written, And seeing the multitudes, he, that's Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened (coughs) his mouth, and he taught them. He taught his disciples, his followers, his students, Christians. A big clue that Matthew chapter 5, uh, chapters 5 through to 7 is teaching for Christians can be seen at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. I'm sure we all know that prayer, and certainly the older generation here probably prayed that prayer many times at school, in the olden days when people still used to pray in school assembly. The thing is, how does that prayer start? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The person who prays is addressing God as Father. But it's only people who are trusting in Jesus as their Saviour from sin who can legitimately address God as Father. Many people do address God as Father. The Pharisees uh, referred to God as their Father, but Jesus said to them, your Father is the devil, and the lusts of your Father you will do. It is only a Christian who can legitimately address God as Father, and that is because Jesus is the one who gives those who are trusting in him, the right, the privilege, the power to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. Do you get that? I mean, that's, that's quite tough, isn't it, really? Because there are many people in this world who think of God as their father, but he is not. It is only when you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you can legitimately Know and address God as Father. 
Generally speaking, the Sermon on the Mount has a twofold purpose. To show what a true Christian is and to show how a true Christian should live. First of all, we're going to consider what a true Christian is. Chapters 5, verses 3 to 11, tell us something about what a true Christian is. Look at verse 3 in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Therefore, a true Christian is someone whose citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. You know, we're all British citizens, British citizens, if you want to break that down, I'm English, there are people in here who are Manx and proud of it, and so on and so on, but if you look in your passport, you are, and your nice blue, your new blue passport, if you've got one, you're a British citizen. But, if you're a Christian, first and foremost, your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And we're told in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 that God, he takes people out of the devil's dark domain and he transfers them into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. People wrongly think that the kingdom of Jesus is something in the future, that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom when he returns. But let me tell you from the scriptures that the kingdom of God is now. And I think people, Christians, miss out on this. And they miss out on great blessings if they don't realise that right now they are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. How wonderful that is. So this world is not your home if you are a Christian. You're just passing through. And you are, aren't you? Surely that's how you feel. I'm not alone in thinking that. Just passing through. I know I'm not alone. Abraham of old, he was a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. And so are all who belong to Jesus. Because they have a heavenly home. If that is you, then praise God who has transferred you out of the devil's dark domain and has placed you into the kingdom of his dear son as a priest of the most high God. Well, have a look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The thought of inheriting the earth takes me back 28 years to when I first believed in Jesus. I know there are people in here who have been a Christian far longer than that. With me, I think it's 28 years. And when I think back to that time when I first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour from sin, my dear old pastor, he brought my attention to the promises of God in the second epistle of the Apostle Peter. I'll read what Peter said in chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Promises of God here. Listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
This is speaking about Jesus when he comes again, like a thief in the night, unexpected. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day, coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, that's Christians, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Is that what you look forward to? I certainly do. New heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. No more sin. No more sin within, no more sin without. Also, we have the vision of the Apostle John, which is recorded in Revelation chapter 21. I'll read that for you as well, verses 1 to 6, where it is written, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. That thread runs all the way through the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, that God will have a people, he will be their God, and they will be his people. And all of that has its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. True and faithful. We actually get truth in the Bible. We don't get it anywhere else, but we get it in the Bible. The new heavens, the new earth, it's from the word of God. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Wonderful promises in the, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Even now, every Christian is sealed with God the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of that glorious and imperishable inheritance the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. What I mean by that is, those of you who are Christians, you have the Holy Spirit bearing testimony to that glorious truth. 
within you and you know in your heart of hearts that there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and you will be there with God. He will be with his people. And that is something that we hang on to each and every day, no matter what we're going through in this world. And that should lift you in your spirit, each one of you who belongs to Jesus, regardless of whatever else might be going on. Even though I would expect to see deadpan expressions on the faces of all those who not who do not know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, I would nevertheless expect to see a look of joyful anticipation on the faces of the Christians in this place as they consider with me the heavenly inheritance that God has promised all his children and the thought that he will be right with them. It's wonderful. Wonderful hopes. Certain hopes. It's not fingers crossed type hope. It's an absolute certainty in Jesus Christ. Coming back to the Sermon on the Mount, and chapter eight, uh, sorry, chapter five and verse eight. Let's have a look at that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, this is the word of God here. We we read this, and it's there to be believed. They shall see God. You have to stop on that and think about it for a while, a while. Can you imagine seeing God? I would say, I don't know this for sure, but I would say if the glorified Jesus walked in this place now, walked through those doors, we would not be able to cope with it. <coughs> None of us would. We would not be able to cope with seeing Jesus in all his glory. His glory burst out of him on the Mount of Transfiguration. His face shone like the sun. And his raiment was as white as light. But if he came in, in here now, and here we are in the body of flesh, sinful flesh, we would not be able to cope with it. But one day we shall see God. When not only do we have um, regenerated spirits, but we have regenerated bodies. And, and God is with us and we are with our God. What a wonderful day that will be. When our great God and Saviour, we shall see. When we look upon his face, the one who saved us by his grace. Promises of God, eh? Who would want to get up in the morning without those promises? I would not want to get up. I would not want to face the new day. Call me a coward, call me what you want. Jesus is my everything. And he is my reason for being. And so say all of the Lord's people. Let's have a look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. As has already been pointed out, every Christian is already a child of God. God is their Heavenly Father. You in here who believe in Jesus, you Know God as your Father. That's a present reality. However, the day will come when the Lord Jesus Christ will return in judgment. We've seen that already. Like a thief in the night, Jesus will come again in judgment 
And when that happens, all of the redeemed, all of his people, all who have trusted in him throughout all ages, all who have been washed in his blood, all who are clothed in his righteousness, will be declared to be the children of God in the presence and hearing of all the scoffers and all who have rejected Jesus and his gospel. Secondly, we can consider the Lord's use of the word blessed. You'll no doubt have noticed, I'm sure you've all noticed, that the adjective blessed is spoken by Jesus in verses 3 to 11, spoken by him no less than nine times. That's a lot just in those verses. And it describes the condition of his disciples. They are blessed. We see it time and time again, nine times that they're blessed. Blessed simply means happy. The fact of the matter is that in spite of the fiery trials, the suffering and the sorrow that Christians will inevitably experience in a world that is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel and all who proclaim Jesus as their saviour from sin, this world is hostile to all of those things. Those people, those who belong to Jesus, nevertheless have a happiness or a contentment that endures. And this is because, why? Because they belong to Jesus. He is their strength. They draw on his sustaining grace. As the psalmist said, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. We can look at the conditions for true happiness. We're back to verse 3 with this one. The conditions for true happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you think the poor in spirit is all about? Well, one thing it is not about is having nothing in the bank. That's for sure. It's not talking about material things. The poor in spirit is a reference to spiritual poverty. The person who is blessed is someone who acknowledges that he has absolutely nothing that would commend him to a holy and sin-hating God. Though he may have worldly riches, he has come to recognise and come to acknowledge that he is spiritually bankrupt. The person who has come to acknowledge that he is spiritually bankrupt is blessed. Not just happy, but where God himself is the one who pronounces that person blessed or happy. It comes from Jesus. You are blessed, Jesus says, if you have come to acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt. In and of yourself, that is. As such... That person comes to the throne of God's grace pleading nothing other than the precious blood of Jesus that was poured out at Calvary's cross. No longer does he stand proud like the Pharisee in the temple boasting about what he has done and what he is and all the rest of it. Instead, by the grace of God, he cries out, God be merciful to me a sinner. That person is blessed. 
God is not interested in people with their puffed out chests boasting about all the things that they've done and, and all the rest of it. What God is looking for is a broken and contrite heart. No longer does that person stand proud, boasting. He just pleads for mercy from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Along with the hymn writer, he says something along the lines of, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, fly to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Naked, spiritually, coming to the fountain of the blood of Jesus to be washed from all their filthy sins. That person is blessed. He is only too aware that he can never pay the debt of his sin, but he praises God that Jesus has paid that debt in full with his own precious blood. As it is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Think about it. Jesus, the King of glory, he stepped down from his heavenly throne, he came down into this dark world of sin, and he laid down his life when he was lifted up to die on a cross. He did all that so that we might, through his poverty, be rich. Be rich in spiritual blessings and have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places through faith in him. Therefore, every true child, every true child of God fully recognises and appreciates that apart from the riches of God's grace, he has nothing, and he is nothing. That man or woman, boy or girl, is blessed. Look at verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that really does seem contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, how can you be happy and be mournful at the same time? If you're a Christian, you, you'll understand that you can, because that describes every Christian. Happy and mournful. Those who mourn, yet are still happy, are the very same people who, with repentant hearts, acknowledge that without Jesus they are spiritual paupers and they have nothing except for sin and more sin. They are the ones whom Jesus comforts. Note that Jesus does not offer comfort to everyone, but to the contrite in heart, to those who bewail their sin. They are mournful about their sin. And Jesus comforts them, and their happiness is in him. And note that this verse is not merely a reference to people when they first believe in Jesus. It doesn't just refer to when you first become a Christian, and you lament your sin, and you cry out for forgiveness, 
and God forgives you your sin, and so on. If this is a, a present reality, if you are a Christian, this is present tense. It's an ongoing condition of people who are blessed. People, Christians, who are burdened by their sin. Like the Apostle Paul, who bewailed his sin, the Apostle Paul, when he said, uh, I, I think this would be a, at least 20 years after Paul became a Christian, and he said, O oh, wretched man that I am! Blessed are you, if that is your sentiment as well. Let me read to you what A.W. Pink said. The Christian himself has much to mourn over. The sins which he now commits, both of omission and commission, are a sense of daily grief to him, or should be and will be if his conscience is kept tender. An ever-deepening discovery of the depravity of his nature, the plague of his heart, the sea of corruption within, ever polluting all that he does, deeply exercises him. Consciousness of the surges of unbelief, the swellings of pride, the coldness of his love, and his paucity of fruit, make him cry, O wretched man that I am. This is speaking about a Christian, a mature Christian, someone who is blessed, someone who is happy and comforted in Jesus. Well, have a look at verse 5. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sorry, I've got that wrong. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is to be gentle, mild and patient. A meek person is often perceived to be a weak person. But that's hardly the case when you consider that there is none meeker than who? The Lord Jesus Christ, who far from being weak is the mighty God. Jesus is meek, but he certainly is not weak. Jesus was not weak when he called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, serpents and a generation of vipers. Neither was he weak when he overturned the tables in the temple courtyard. When the temple courtyard had been turned into a marketplace. And Jesus most certainly was not weak when he carried the sin of all his redeemed in his own body at the cross. That is not weakness. As a Christian, you will need all the meekness that the Lord gives you to enable you, enable you not to repay someone evil for evil. It takes a lot of meekness to bridle your mouth, to zip it, as I say, and not to speak inappropriately to those who offend you without a good reason. It's so tempting to give them a mouthful, isn't it? If your name is Glenn Walters. Sometimes it takes a lot of meekness to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies when they are driving you to despair because of your faith in Jesus. And on top of that, you no doubt have your ongoing struggles with sin. I'm certain you do. 
such as pride, stubbornness, and who knows what else to deal with. It's worth noting that meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, which means that all of you who belong to Jesus ought to be bringing forth the fruit of meekness. I'm guessing that I'm not the only Christian who prays for much more of that fruit in my walk with the Lord. We bring forth fruit as Christians, good fruit, as living branches, savingly connected to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. We really ought to be bringing forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. We're all different, aren't we? But if you recognise that your meekness is pretty tiny, then pray about it. Pray about it. Because after all, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you conjure up within yourself. It comes from God. Most of all, the person who is meek with a godly meekness is someone who submits to the Word of God. That's where meekness starts. Submitting to the Word of God with each one of you showing repentance towards God and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, if you have not received Jesus as your saviour from your sin, and you are rejecting that greatest act of love ever, Jesus laying down his life on the cross for sinners, if you have not received him, don't tell me that you are meek, because you are not. In conclusion, let me ask you something. What is the foundation or the grounds for you claiming to be happy or claiming to be blessed? If indeed you are happy or blessed. It's most unlikely to be anything to do with a holiday abroad that you have booked. You can forget nice holidays for who knows how long. Is it something material, like a new car or a nice new phone that makes you happy? You're not so happy when you drop your phone on the floor and it smashes. Maybe you have a lovely family, lovely children who mean everything to you. But so did Job in the Old Testament. He had seven sons and three daughters. The problem is they all died. Every one of them. The only grounds for claiming a happiness that will endure, not be here today and gone tomorrow, it will, the one that will endure no matter what, is when you have Jesus as your saviour from sin. And when that is the case, he is with you in all the storms of life. And you really can be going through the storms of life and still rejoice. It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. But also, and this is important, those who are in Christ have glorious promises. I don't know if us Christians, we, we, we um, make much of the promises of God. You know, we're glad to be saved from our sins. Our testimony would be along the lines of, well, Jesus saved me from my sins. Praise God for that. But the promises of God, the 
New Testament is full of those promises. Glorious promises of great things to come. Promises which are certain. They will come to fruition. I'm talking about being Jesus with Jesus where he is. What a wonderful promise that is. And inheriting the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We don't talk about those things, do we, in Christian circles, the new heavens and the new earth. We should do. There are a lot of people who are not happy. In fact, they are so miserable that they end their lives, or they talk about ending their lives. That's how happy they are. How tragic that is, but perhaps you can see why it is. And you can even understand why it is. As they see it, they have nothing to live for and they have nothing to look forward to. That's very different if you're a Christian. You have everything to live for because you are a priest of the Most High God. You are a child of the Most High God. You have a citizenship which is in heaven. You have Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord who loved you and who gave himself for you. This is all a present reality. And as for looking forward to something, you have got so much to look forward to as a Christian. So, as I said earlier, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. May that be each one of us here. Amen.